Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer. The Deep Dive is an in-depth discussion on some of the most important issues facing Napa County and wine country. On our program, we try and bring you stories uh, you might not hear anywhere else, insights from people who are uh, informed and making things happen. We originate from the studios of KVON, the voice of Napa, here in the beautiful Napa Valley. Our new shows air every Thursday morning at 9 o'clock, and you can always listen to our past programs on the website at kvon.com. I'm always happy to hear from you and especially welcome your suggestions on future discussions and possible guests. Drop us an email at deepdiveshow at windownmedia.com. Uh, get us on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Dive Show, and please like us on Facebook, uh, Deep Dive Show. If you're interested in some of our past conversations, you can listen to them in their entirety on uh, the website kvon.com. Just look for uh, Deep Dive. Today I'm talking with Allison Haley, the District Attorney of Napa County, and we have a lot of ground to cover. Her priorities regarding prosecution and victim assistance, uh, the increasing number of women in prosecutorial roles in California, uh, the so-called progressive prosecutor movement, cannabis, and maybe a little politics, and a lot more. If you missed our program last week, we had a great discussion with Bernie Narvaez, a candidate for the Napa City Council. Although Napa is 40% Latinx, it has no Hispanic representation on the council, and Bernie's trying to change that. We talked about district elections, the challenges of home ownership in Napa, and how he and his family are, are making it work. So take a listen. Uh, I also plan to have uh, Beth Painter, who's also a candidate for the council, uh, on a future show as well. And if you go back and on, want to review some of our past programs, two weeks ago uh, we had a number of volunteers from Moms Demand Action uh, because it was uh, National Gun Violence uh, Survivors Week, uh, talking about what you can do. I encourage you to go back and listen if you are interested in getting active in that movement because there's plenty for individuals to do. And again, you know, our, our past programs focused in on the future of uh, local news uh, here in the Napa Valley, the potential treasure that is Lake Berryessa, which is, I guess, any minute now coming into uh, control of, uh, under Napa County control. Uh, we talked about homelessness and affordable housing and the progress that's being made in that sector. Uh, and then, of course, um, a wide-ranging discussion of the pressures and uh, challenges facing Napa County agriculture and um, the Farm Bureau's desire to be a very active player in, in the political process. So before we get to our guest, let me just give you a couple of thoughts off the top. And since we are, we are recording this the day after the Democratic debate, which was quite lively last night in Las Vegas, I think it's important to talk about the upcoming election. There seems to be some confusion, as there always is, but there are two upcoming elections in 2020. And I think it's important for people to know what's on the ballot in each one, and it's even more important for you to vote. Now, Napa County makes it pretty easy for you to vote, um, but not to be melodramatic, but I cannot imagine a more important election uh, than 2020, given everything that's going on in this community, our state, and of course, nationally. So, a quick primer. 
the first election, March 10th, or excuse me, March 3rd. Um, the second election, November 3rd. On, uh, on March 3rd, you will vote for nominees in the presidential primary. Uh, the Republican side seems pretty much guaranteed to be uh, uh, Donald Trump's, but uh, March 3rd is known as Super Tuesday, and that is because one-third of all of the delegates to the Democratic National Convention will be selected on that one day. So after Super Tuesday, we will have a much clearer picture of how the Democratic nomination is shaping up. Just to put some numbers on it, we've selected about 155 delegates to date through Democratic primaries and caucuses. After Super Tuesday, that number will be at, at about 1,400. And remember that the ultimate nominee will need about 4,000 delegates to claim the nomination. Now, before I watched that debate last night, I would have told you that it looked like a battle between Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg did not have his best night, uh, so it's not clear that the it's not clear to me that the uh, debate uh, helped clarify things. It d certainly showed that Elizabeth Warren is not to be counted out. She's still uh, powerful uh, as she ever is on the stump. Uh, it shows us that Mike Bloomberg has got. A lot of work to do to, uh, you know, to get less rusty on that debate stage. He's been on it before, but I think after the Nevada, after Nevada, and after Super Tuesday, we will be talking about maybe two or three or four candidates because the numbers, the delegate numbers, just don't lie. In Napa County, three of our five supervisors are on the ballot: Ryan Gregory in District Two, Alfredo Pedroza in District Four, and Belia Ramos in District 5. Uh, Gregory's unopposed. Pedroza is being challenged by Amber Manfrey and Ramos by Mariam Abudamas. We're also electing a superior court judge and a county treasurer and tax collector. Um, I'm sure that's a very fun job, but you should definitely take a look at it. It is an important race. Now, our legislators are on the ballot. They're all on the primary ballot. Mike Thompson, Bill Dodd, Cecilia Aguiar-Curry, but they have token opposition in the primaries, and you'll get to vote for them again in November if you support them. You should also be paying attention to Measure K. Measure K is the Napa County initiative to provide funding for the Parks and Open Space District, which <clears throat> will give us a dedicated quarter, cent, quarter percent sales tax increase. Its purpose is to allow purchase and protection of wetlands, or excuse me, wildlands, and includes funding for uh, city park facilities. So take a look at that. Uh, it, is a, it is a tax increase. Now your city or town council's races will be on the ballot in November, and we'll be talking about, we'll be talking about those races on our upcoming shows. But I'll, I'll just remind you again, if you're a city of Napa voter, you will have district elections for your city council starting this November. The council is on a very fast track to get these districts um, carved up and in place and adopted, uh, but rather than voting at large for council members uh, in November, you will be voting for somebody in your 20,000 person district. Mayor still runs citywide. I encourage you to go to the city's webpage and learn more because if you live in the city of Napa, it's gonna be different. The way you vote is gonna be different. Okay, 
On today's program, we're talking to Allison Haley, the District Attorney of Napa County, a position she was appointed to in 2017 and elected to in 2018, in what I understand was a very close race in 2018. <laughs> Excruciating, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Allison ran unopposed, needless to say. So Allison's part of a years-long trend in California that has elevated more women to prosecutorial roles. I did a little research in prep prepping for the show and found out that um, half the district attorneys in California are women, and more than half, more than half of the nearly 4,000 professional prosecutors and DA's offices around the state are women as well. And women are similarly uh, well represented on the public defender side as well. So, Allison, thank you for coming on the show. Good morning. It's nice to be here. One of the more um, intriguing things I learned about you is that you were drawn to the law and law enforcement in part because your dad was incarcerated for embezzlement as you were growing up in Southern California. Correct. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. I grew up, I was born in Los Angeles and raised in Orange County and um, lived a life with an addict. My father was an addict. He was, um, if he wasn't drinking, it was pills. If it wasn't pills, it was something else. And um, when I was in my late adolescence, um, ended up being arrested for um, embezzlement. He had owned a business and it turned out he was embezzling that money. He went from a county jail in Orange County, the Theo Lacey facility, um, and was sent to prison, uh, the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility down in San Diego County. This was all during the time of my late high school years and then through college. So he missed my high school graduation but was there for my college graduation. I, uh, I'm asked regularly in public sort of why I became interested or how I ended up in criminal law. And if I don't want to get into it, I'll say something like, um, "Star or, uh, Silence of the Lambs was my Star Wars, right? And that's true, um, but I think the real impetus became when I saw the effect of incarceration on American families, on how at 46 years old I sit here today and I am not the same 46-year-old that I would have been had that not happened to me and my family, going through that with my mom. As a result, because my dad was arrested and ultimately convicted for embezzlement, there's something called asset forfeiture. So the government, um, we literally had a home, and then it. the next day it was gone, as well as the cars, as well as the bank accounts, as well as the credit You're cards. You're how old when this happens? Um, I was 16 um, yeah. when he was finally taken. We kind of knew that it was happening for a long time. Life was hard enough at 16 yes. without this kind of intervention. Yes, and I, we, had, we were speaking prior to going on air. I did not tell the truth about the reality of my growing up, both the addictions, the mental health problems that were um, going on behind closed doors, the incarceration until I was 30 years old. Mm -hmm. um, you have siblings that went through this yeah, with you? Yeah, I, I have two siblings. One has since passed away. She had lifelong anorexia. Mm -hmm. And my middle sister, but they are both, my eldest sister was 13 years older than I was, and my middle sister was 11 years older. She was already out of the house. And so it was my mom and I um, going through that, and we were homeless. Mm. So, I, so we talked a couple of weeks ago on this program about homelessness mm -hmm. and how it is that people become homeless so easily mm -hmm. that just a small change in their life, a, a catastrophic health issue, getting fired, 
I had a guest on, on another matter who told me that he was homeless. Uh, he lost his job and he and his three kids lived out of a car, right? So how did you, how did you make do? How did you get by? We became the beneficiaries of a, an unbelievable family that had attended our church and we were able to live in a back bedroom of um, their home that they very generously shared with us. This is, a, you were still in Orange County? Yeah, um, yep. so I was raised, went to Fullerton High School, but this home was in Anaheim, um, a very different neighborhood, a very different set of circumstances. Really call it Anna crime? That's, <laughs> I have not heard that, yeah. um, but sure. Well, you and I are big fans of podcasts, yeah. one of the things I was going to mention, and um, Detective Trap is mm-hmm. one that I encourage you to listen to. She's a... Anaheim um, uh, uh, homicide investigator, and she refers to it as Anna crime. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So um, we lived in this um, back bedroom. I was going to college at the time, so some of the time I was living in a dorm, and then I'd be um, driven back to be with my mom on weekends. We would go and visit my dad um, down in San Diego County, and uh, that was my life for several years. I read somewhere that you cried the first time you sent somebody to prison. Yes. So why? She was a mom and her kids were there. Mm-hmm. And what had she done? Threatened to set a house on fire with the kids in it. Uh, she, I, I, this was a long time ago. So this was almost 20 years ago. She had, it was a threats case and she had threatened to burn down some, a family's home, um, terrifying them. She had a long criminal history and the way that sentencing worked at that time, there really weren't other choices before the court and the court pronounced that they were, um, going to send her to prison. I saw her family hear it. And I went to the bathroom hmm. on the second floor of the criminal courthouse and cried. This was in L.A.? No, this was here. This was so, here? Yeah, I was a federal prosecutor down in Los Angeles, oh, but doing very different kind of work. But the first time that I sent someone, or I didn't send someone, <laughs> when the judge pronounced that judgment as a result of the prosecution that I was leading at that time, that was incredibly powerful. I knew at least I knew for me what the effect of that was on the family and cause you'd lived it cause I'd lived it. Yeah. I, um, have shared with you one of my favorite old radio programs called Mr. District attorney, which ran in the forties and fifties. And what's so great about it is that the district attorney in this, in this mythical County, uh, is himself, you know, a crime fighting crusader. He goes out and he grabs up the bad guys and, <laughs> You know, he he brings them in, he handcuffs them, he prosecutes them, he sends them away. That's not exactly how it works in the Napa County DA's office. So That's true. Give us a little primer on how your office is organized and, and the kind of work that each of the different uh, sections do. Sure. And I'm glad you asked this question. I do sometimes think that there's this narrative that I am, you know, fighting criminals at night, uh, coming and trying every single case myself. You don't have a um, pair of handcuffs in right, that bag? Where the, the lived reality of my life is lots of meetings and making sure that um, I don't have my kids paint on my outfit and right getting <laughs> through the day. So the Napa County district attorney's office, the largest law firm in Napa County, we have just under 80 total employees. 
we handle 6,000 cases a year, 4,000 misdemeanors. These are rough numbers. 4,000 misdemeanors, 2,000 uh, felonies every calendar year. The issue before the district attorney's office is never did something bad happen, was a law broken. The issue before the, the district attorney's is always very narrow. It is Upon a review of the evidence in this case, is it enough to support a conviction in a criminal courtroom in front of 12 neutral um, observers or jurors? Can I prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? Is the evidence sufficient to do that? That's a very different question and a very different burden than did something bad happen? Or I know something bad or, happened. I have this gossip because I read about it right. in the comments section on Facebook. You and, have to prove it. Right. That's the, um, that's and the proving difference. it is the real different right. thing, right? And that's a high bar. So um, that is the issue that is constantly before the district attorney's office. And explaining that difference to, say, parents of a crime survivor, if I have to make the decision that I both believe that a crime committed, was committed. I believe your child is telling the truth. But upon my professional judgment and review of the evidence, if I don't believe that I can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, I am ethically prohibited from filing that case. And getting parents or getting loved ones or getting crime survivors to hear that difference, it's one of the hardest things about being the district attorney. What was so interesting, um, I also listened to this podcast called Chasing Cosby, and it talks about the prosecution and how the, the uh, incumbent district attorney who did not file charges against him in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which is not far from where I grew up, um, got, got run out of office um, on this issue largely, and that the new DA decided that he was going to bring charges. I'm assuming that there was the same set of evidence, right? But it was his call that he was going to go that he was going to go for that conviction. Yeah, I think and he it's, was successful. It's, I'll tell you, I uh, the longer I've been doing this, the little bit more arrogant I become, right? I think that I can prove a lot of things, and maybe I'm willing to um, always have. Um, a moving target about what I think that I can prove or what I think that my office can do. Um, but yeah, that's always the issue. It's always the, the forefront ethical issue. And I've had people come to my office and say, just, just charge it. And then, and then the, the and evidence will come in. Right. And I was stunned and said, I can lose my bar card. I can lose my livelihood. It is unethical for me to do that. And being able to explain that people think that they watch Law and Order or they watch right. NCIS and therefore they know how this works. And sadly, it is not as interesting as those television or as shows fast. or as fast. Right. And that the ethical guidelines are very strict. I got called for jury duty in Alameda County, which is where I lived before I moved up here. And um, uh, as we were as we were going for the interviews, the prosecutor said, "I know you watch Law and Order. I know you watch these police procedurals. You know they pick up a gun. There's a fingerprint on it. They get a match. You know." He said. Nothing happens that fast. Can you set that aside? Yeah, it's called the CSI effect, right? We talk about it now in trainings um, when you're working with juries. Is they there is a belief that they've seen this or that they know or that I can pick a fiber off the bottom of my shoe and match it to the and it's not that those things haven't happened, but that assumes you know an extraordinary budget for every single kind of case and the ability to not have a lab backup or all of the the realities of um, that face uh, right. 
criminal justice practitioners. Right. And, and, and you know, it's like you're not going to sit down with a fiber off the bottom of your shoe and within 30 minutes get a hit, a not DNA ever. hit. Not ever. Right. Yeah. But it is becoming important mm -hmm. since in your career, it, those technologies have gotten more reliable, more accessible, Certainly. more important in prosecutions. Absolutely. Still expensive, but yes. Still expensive, <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's the prosecution side. Uh, talk about the, the advocacy side that, that you do for victims of crime um, and you know people who have been, families who have been affected by crime. Sure. This is an area that um, I think goes a little bit unknown about the district attorney's office, that one of my responsibilities is to help protect and to provide services to crime survivors, whether or not we're able to file that criminal case. So um, we have victim witness advocates that are employees of the district attorney's office, and their job is to be compassionate towards crime survivors. They are there to help walk them to court, to arrange for mental health services, to, God forbid, paying for funerals, to making sure the, pa the paperwork is filled out, to go with them, and to really be a liaison between an assigned district attorney and that crime survivor. But moreover, one of the major projects that is sitting on my desk right now is opening up Monarch Resource Community. It is going to be Napa County's one-stop shop for crime survivors. And what I mean by that is the way that the current system is now, if God forbid I am sexually assaulted tonight, I am going to be asked to go on a scavenger hunt throughout Napa County to provide services, right? I'm going to have to go to housing. I'm going to have to go to the queen to have my medical right. conditions taken care of. I'm going to have to go up and down this valley to all these different places, tell my story all those different times. And uh, right Look Which at is me. your reward I'm, for having been a exactly. victim of crime. I am an English speaker. I am someone who has a vehicle, and I also have a job that I can walk away from for a day. Change any of those variables. Let's say that that crime survivor um, is a member of our LGBTQ community and doesn't really want to tell their story in front of everyone, or simply, um, or maybe they have immigration concerns and they don't want to go to a courtroom and get a restraining order, or they are disabled or they're homeless or they have substance abuse problems or any of those things that can compound. I want there to be one door that they walk through that's not a prosecutor and it's not a police officer. It is about making people whole again in a way that is compassionate and dignified for the trauma that they've just been exposed to and that we navigate services around our crime survivors rather than expecting them to do it. So Monarch is where in its in its development? So we are physically located immediately north of the Napa Police Department. And you know what? I got the bare minimum of people in the door, and I opened it. And I didn't have a politician, wine-laden, opening, grand. It needed to start. No ribbon-cutting? No, ri no Now, we'll do conference. that. Oh, we do? will, okay. you know, eventually, once it's, you know, fully flushed out, but... It is up and running. It opened in July of last year. Crime survivors, whether they have cooperated with the police or not, because that is not a requirement, can walk through the doors and we have a navigator with one intake and we are able to coordinate this robust nonprofit community that we are blessed with here in Napa County around the crime survivor rather than asking the crime survivor to go to each one of these different places to seek out what it is that they need. Mm -hmm. So right now we are literally 
taking over individual offices, outfitting them, getting the furniture and starting it up. But I'll tell you, we're doing interviews there now and we are um, hosting our crime survivors now and different organizations are providing us even just bags. If you are a sex assault survivor and you've went and had a sex assault exam, they've taken your underpants and your bra. And they've taken, so we now have bags that we can give to them so that we understand that crime survivors are due the dignity and the compassion to treat them well in basic fundamental ways. And that perhaps there is uh, some sensitivity about the way certain crime survivors are treated, especially if you're like a sex crime survivor yes. versus other kinds of crime. Not, not, they're not the, the same. They're not the same. The needs of the victim are different. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it, is it working? So I am a very big believer that it needs to be survivor accountable. I shouldn't be the one who's designing Monarch Resource Community. And let me give you an example. I was with some crime survivors and I was walking them through the facility. And I came across this little nook that's in the building. And right now it's filled with copy machines. And I said, oh, we're going to get rid of all these copy machines and we're going to put in whatever my silly idea was. And they stopped me and they said, oh, no, you don't understand. We need copy machines. Like I need copies of the restraining order or I need copies of my divorce papers or I need copies. It never occurred to me. And that is why I cannot be in charge of Monarch. It has to be survivor accountable. <laughs> you can be the prime mover, but not, uh, but, not the designer, but step away. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we have to be responsive to that. We are going to take a short break. Um, and continue our discussion uh, on the other side with Allison Haley, the district attorney uh, of Napa County. This is the Deep Dive Program. I'm Larry Kamer. Hello and welcome back to the Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer, talking with our guest, Allison Haley, the district attorney of Napa County. We had talked earlier about some of the roles and responsibilities of the DA's office, some myths and facts, and some interesting stuff about Allison's uh, personal history, which I find just intriguing. So in addition to holding this office, you are part of the elected official community in Napa County. You are, for better or worse, a politician. How do you view the political part of your job? Oh. Well, I can say this. Uh, I'm a much better lawyer than I am politician. Um, I am an introvert. I used to believe that people who held themselves out in public positions, whether they were celebrities or politicians, were really just self-aggrandizing twerps. Twerps. Yes. And it wasn't until... You became one that you saw. It wasn't until life has you do things that you think you'd never do. And the work simply became more important than my desire for privacy or my fear of being judged. Mm -hmm. And here I am. But I'll tell you, I struggle constantly with, am I showing up in a genuine way? Mm -hmm. Am I going to this event because I think I'm going to get something out of it? Or am I going to this because I genuinely believe in it? It's why my campaign account has 300 bucks in it. I'm not as good about that kind of aspect of it. And I'm constantly checking whether or what my motivations are when I do things. 
As you think about it right now, you will be up for election again in two years. Yes. Would you would you say that you are inclined to run again? Yes. Okay. Good. Don't beat around the bush now. <laughs> um, are you endorsing any of the candidates or the measures on upcoming ballots that, that I described earlier, either November, March or November? Yes. So I have endorsed Alfredo Pedroza and Belia Ramos. And I, and I think something else on that that you had said as well, but the two supervisorial candidates. Yeah, we have Judge, we have... Oh, yes, I'm sorry, that's yes. exactly it, Langhorn. Uh, Judge Langhorn, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, all right, so you uh, you will run for re-election in 2020, that's great, you'll probably need more than 300 yes. bucks between now and then. <laughs> we'll, we'll stay, it's true. We'll stay close to that. When you took office, you lamented the state of fact and statistics gathering in the DA's office. Um, now, does this stem from the fact that you were a teacher of stati uh, statistics, or is there a more human story to that? Uh, there's a couple of, of reasons. I, uh, I taught statistics to pay my way through law school up at UC Davis, so I have a strong um, statistics background. The office, when I took it over, there was no real way for me to prove to the public or to the Board of Supervisors or to the people, all these taxpayers who pay, you know, pay for my budget whether I was any good, whether the office was doing any kind of good job. And, and what I did... hold itself accountable absolutely. in an objective way. Yes. What are the numbers saying? Um, I took over December 31st, and with uh, within eight weeks, I sent a contingency down to San Diego County District Attorney's Office because they have these beautiful statistics. And I said, I want what they have. We sent someone from IT, the assistant district attorney, some clerical staff, and brought it back. And now we have these robust numbers that I am able to determine, number one, whether I'm doing any good, where are areas that we need improvement? Where are the areas that we need training? Because I, ha I am a fiduciary of the money that's provided to me. And I'll tell you what, I take it very seriously. I'm not going to do generalized training when the numbers are telling me we really need training in the prosecution of identity theft. And having robust numbers enable to do that, to do that kind of thing. But moreover, and I think that this may be what you're getting to, we have a conviction rate. Every right. district attorney's office does. And my motto about conviction rates are is, I care, but not that much. And what I mean by that is, if you have a district attorney who is too tied in to her conviction rate, it prevents that district attorney from doing the right thing. And an example of that is this. We had a, a man who was being charged with a felony, and I forget what the nature of the felony was. His defense attorney comes into my office and says, listen, this, this defendant, he's in hospice, and he really wants to go without having a felony on his record. It's very important to him and his family. If I was a district attorney that cared to make sure that at all costs we had the highest conviction rate ever, I would not have the ability to allow a man to go with the dignity of not having that felony conviction. Right, because you had a layup, basically. Mm -hmm. for, for you, you could not... Put another notch on there. Absolutely. So I care about my conviction rate. It is an important performance measure of district attorney's office. It tells you whether or not they're hitting the mark, whether they're they're 
they're charging the right people under the right circumstances. But you care too much, and it prevents you from doing the right thing. The number that I care the most about is how many cases are we dismissing each month for insufficiency of the evidence? And you know why? I want that number to be zero every month because any number in that bucket means that a member of my staff or myself we brought the weight of the United States government down on the head of a criminal defendant, and we did not have sufficient evidence to justify it. It is never okay. But that has to be a, a tough, I mean, I have to believe that you or your prosecutors have cases where they just know the guy was wrong, mm -hmm. but they can't prove it. And that, that's what counts, right? In the court of law, yeah. it's not whether he did it or not, it's whether you can, can prove, prove it or it. not. There are times when further investigation, we learn something, and we do. There's now insufficiency of the evidence, right? We, the, the investigation continues, and sometimes those cases fall apart. Or a, a survivor that we had believed was cooperative is now uh, no longer cooperative or no longer can be found, or we can't you know, pull that person with a subpoena. We see that a lot in sex trafficking cases. Sometimes those things happen, but boy you really want to be asking your district attorney's office what that number is because it really denotes the health of your DA's office. And what about statistics on things like evidence collection, which you know we have so much, um, so much focus on, especially in sex crimes? Mm -hmm. um, what have you done there? What's been your focus there? So every month I publish um, t internally to my prosecutors and quarterly on our public website, both our conviction statistics and our filing rates. And our filing rates are this, all the different uh, sources, the law enforcement sources that we receive cases from, we monitor how many of those cases are we filing or are we sending back for further evidence. And I can control for type of crime, whether it's child sex crimes, adult sexual assault, gang crimes, general felonies, identity theft, and I can control for law enforcement agency. So I can, I, I can run the numbers and say, listen, how is the Napa County Sheriff's Department, how are their detectives doing on their child sex assault cases? And if we have a high filing rate, that means that they are providing me what it is I need for those kinds of cases. But if I run the numbers and find out, you know what, we're doing great in child sex assault, but we're not doing that great on identity theft. We're not getting the right kind of information. That enables me to spend money the taxpayers pay mm -hmm. to do training that is specific and meaningful for where law enforcement is today. You and I share a great admiration for uh, Nancy O'Malley, who's the district attorney of Alameda County, uh, in no small part for her work in combating human trafficking, child prostitution. Now, I know the numbers, we are fortunate to live in a low crime county, but what is it that people need to know about these particular kinds of crimes and some of the myths and misconceptions about trafficking? Number one, that it's happening here in Napa County. It is. It is. Number two, that it is cruel. The relationships that are built between the, the trafficker and those who are unwillingly trafficked, that kind of coercion and duress, it's a cruelty. I've taken a prison I've taken a prison position on those cases meaning that I have not had a case that has gone through my office where I have okayed an offer that allows for probation because of the level of cruelty that exists in that relationship. 
And third, that the, we, we could have as many cases as we have capacity to prosecute. Meaning that if I was to open it up to NSIB and say, go crazy, bring me every case you want to bring. NSIB. Could, NSIB, Napa, uh, Napa Special Investigations Bureau. Thank it you. is the investigative bureau that is currently um, really at the forefront of combating sex trafficking here in Napa County. I could fill my office with sex trafficking cases. So next week, we were talking about Super Tuesday and the primary election in March. Uh, one of the more interesting races in California is in Los Angeles, where the voters are going to decide whether or not to reelect the first woman DA uh, in L.A. County, the first African-American DA in L.A. County, uh, Jackie Lacey. She's been in the job since 2012. Um, you and I were talking before air about how nutty the politics are. Um, with uh, George Gascon's former colleagues here in San Francisco, the mayor and the city attorney going out of their way to endorse his opponent in an L.A. race, and then recently Kamala Harris endorsing Gascon. Um, you following that race? I am. So one of the things that the L.A. race brings to the fore is this whole phenomenon of so-called progressive prosecutors. And I want to I want to spend a couple of minutes talking with you about that. What would how would you describe a progressive prosecutor? I believe that the platform behind and also kind of a, another phrase, criminal justice reform or progressive prosecutors, those seem to be used interchangeably. They are properly bringing conversations into the public forum that are long overdue conversations about equity and conversations about disproportionate effects of policy on black and brown communities, conversations about how we as a society are treating the least of us, mm -hmm. right? And in issues about if you believe in redemption or second chances, does that have a place at the table? That's what criminal justice reform and progressive prosecutors, I believe that the upside is absolutely bringing these conversations to their rightful place at the table. And to be meta for a moment, me saying that they are properly at the table doesn't make them so. These conversations are long overdue and are an important part of anyone who's practicing in any variety of, of, of place in criminal justice. Would you put would you put that label on yourself? I think that there's some fundamental differences that I have, um, and we can talk about that in terms of separation of powers. I believe that there are things that I absolutely am aligned with in terms of progressive prosecutors, but would I put myself in that category? I think it's unnecessarily binary. Again, there are things Like that, so many labels in politics. There are things, for example, I've opened up the first ever a mental health unit within our office because it is immoral and unethical to be treating the mentally ill in a criminal justice situation. Right. And yet, that's where most mentally ill people in California still and we have got to do their better. treatment. Right. Some things like that are aligned at that progressive movement. We are pivoting philosophies about expansion of misdemeanor diversion or having something like a transitional age youth program where we recognize that we are not defined by the worst thing that we did when we were 21. 
right? And the effects that that having maybe a felony or a jail sentence or a prison sentence is going to have on your employability when you're in your 50s, recognizing those kinds of things. All of those things are aligned with the progressive prosecutor movement. But again, I have some fundamental disagreements. And again, I think it's it's unnecessarily binary. So you have Chesa Putin in San Francisco, just elected DA, Gascon running in Los Angeles, uh, Kim Fox in Chicago, Kim Ogg in Houston, uh, Larry Krasner, who was kind of at the vanguard of this, who took on the, uh, the DA's office in Philadelphia in 2017. Broadly speaking, you know, I, I think what all of them would say is that they believe in adjusting priorities away from incarceration, uh, reforming cash bail, and being a little tougher on law enforcement abuses. Um, they also seem not to want to prosecute low-level marijuana cases. So these seem like important steps, don't they? Even if you don't call yourself a progressive prosecutor? I think that they are, again, all conversations that, that need to be had. I think where the disagreement comes is this, and let me give a, 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 an example so that we can talk about something concrete. Something that's typical, and I can't say for all of those prosecutors, but a, a common platform, say, is if I'm, a, if I'm going to call myself a progressive prosecutor, I am going to choose to not charge a gang enhancement, just uniformly. And what that means is there are certain kinds of crimes that if I can prove were done for the benefit of a criminal street gang, I can charge an enhancement. And what the enhancement does is it lengthens the exposure that you have to prison. And the argument from their perspective is it has a disproportionate effect on our brown and black communities that it is criminalizing culture. Mm -hmm. To me, I don't quibble with any of those um, foundational beliefs or um, problems, right? I don't. That's not my argument. My argument is if you don't want to charge gang enhancements, you need to go to the legislature and abolish gang enhancements. I'm an enforcer. District attorneys are enforcers. But do you have no choice in that matter? You have, you have, have discretion, right? We have prosecutorial discretion. And maybe that's where the real crux of it comes down. I believe that I can exercise that discretion in individual cases. But I don't have the right to ignore my clients. My clients are the people of the state of California. And I know what they want by the laws that they pass and by the penal code that's sitting on my desk. And when I simply decide to ignore gang enhancements and ignore firearms enhancements and ignore vast swaths of the criminal code, that seems to be a much broader interpretation of prosecutorial discretion than I'm comfortable with. But on See, the flip side, you are... You know, you don't strike me as somebody who wants to throw the book at everyone and, and you know, get headlines for maximum number of, of prison sentences and convictions. Clearly not. There have been cases that have hit my desk where I have decided on individual basis because I'm both complying with Marcy's law and Marcy's law are all of those rights that are mm -hmm. guaranteed to crime survivors to charge them in some cases and not charge them in other cases. But I don't make those decisions before I've ever spoken with a crime survivor, before I've ever read the facts of the case. Just in the same way, so as a result of Prop 47, my clients really made a strong statement that they want substance abuse to be dealt with as the public health problem that it is and really decriminalized simple possession of controlled substances. So today, 
if you had in your pocket right now methamphetamine, it's a misdemeanor. I Thank God. I don't get to I don't go to court. To any, but that's good to know. <laughs> I don't get to go to court and say, you know what, I'm going to ignore the will of the voters and continue to charge it as the felony that it used to be. Right. I find that as offensive as going in and saying, I'm going to ignore this vast swath of these other things. The real, the gravamen of a DA and why you always need to be voting for someone who is deeply moral <laughs> is that that is within their discretion in those individual cases to make those choices. And that's where I think the real difference becomes is this separation of powers issue. Great campaign slogan, deeply moral. Uh, hey, um, I read a piece about you a couple of years ago where you said that you were placing a particular focus on the Latinx community, which has been intimidated by federal immigration policies. How do you do that without picking a fight with the federal admit this this current administration by not caring not caring about the fight with the current administration um, I've been asked multiple times from different organizations about the effect that this administration has had on individual DA's offices and I can't speak for all of them but nothing has changed in my office crime survivors of all <laughs> of all kinds and types and colors and shapes and sizes they are as eligible for our services and as eligible for our compassion and dignity as anyone else um, so what do you do? Uh, you know, can you be specific when you talk about paying a special attention or giving a special focus to sure. the Latinx community? I think it's about having those voices at the table when we are making policy decisions and hiring decisions to recognize that the people that we have making those decisions, there's a message that we send. See, I'm a Caucasian middle-aged woman. That, that sends a message if I don't have any other voices at the table to help craft policies and uh, presentation in a meaningful way, right? So being present to being open to those different communities and also to have more community programming, right? So we have um, opportunities that we're going to be um, exploring in this next year about community education, um, exoneration clinics, those clinics where people again, disproportionately black and brown communities um, can come and fill out the paperwork with our help to help clear records, to help take advantage of the kinds of things that are eligible under the law now to help them move forward. I think those things are all overtures by our office. We've also been trying to be more forthcoming with information about the office, what it is that we're doing, issuing more press releases, being out in social media more, trying to be out more in our communities so that we're more accessible to all walks in our in our community. Uh, the communicator in me says, good job, keep doing it. Um, you know, the more transparency, the more communication, the better. So um, I also want to talk to you about cannabis. Um, you know, this is a topic of much discussion in Napa County. Napa County uh, voted over 60% in the uh, statewide initiative that legalized uh, cannabis. The Board of Supervisors here is taking a much more deliberate approach on the question of cultivation, commercial growing, even though there are some voices calling for a more expedited process or more dedication of, of acreage to commercial cannabis. Um, 
what's your thinking on on legalizing uh, cultivation or encouraging cult commercial cultivation? So my individual opinion about things is less important than what is it that our clients want? My clients want access, right? The people in the state of California want to have that kind of access, and I think that that's clear. However, um, I have some concerns that make me glad that there is a more deliberate approach that's being taken. We have one shot to do this well and one shot to learn from other communities. So, of course, I'm a DA. I have concerns about bringing crime into my county. I have concerns about whether or not my clients here in, the state, in uh, Napa County have the stomach for the kinds of crimes that are seen in other communities. Do we have the stomach for that? Are you ready to see that here? I have some concerns about, of course, continued um, federal positions as it relates to cannabis because I want to protect both the people here in this county as well as the county overall. Um, again, I'm an enforcer. I'm going to enforce the law as it's created, but I'll tell you what, I, I'm also in the privileged position of being in a situation where I'm I'm okay with the idea that it's they're taking a deliberate pace to it. But you're also, uh, uh, you know, whether um, whether you like it or not, although it sounds like you're getting more used to it, you are a public official. You're a, a public opinion leader. <laughs> Your opinion matters. Um, if asked today, you know, about commercial cultivation, would those reservations of yours be what kind of most influences your your position? Probably so. Uh, and I think that that comes from speaking with other similarly situated people across the state and hearing the stories and the problems that have been faced. I want our community to continue to enjoy the safety that we have and the quality of life that we have in a way that still honors issues of access but still protects the real gem that we have here. As always happens on this program, um, we have run out of time a lot faster than I would have liked. Um, we're going to wrap up our interview with Allison Haley. Allison, I want to thank you again and ask you, where can people go to learn more about you and about the DA's office? So we have a, a, a pretty active Facebook page now. Um, we also have trolls on, on our Facebook well, page. Comes, comes that's part the of the other, deal. Right? Yeah. Um, You've arrived. But we, um, I'm, I, and I'm the one that's in charge of it. Uh, we're really sharing a lot of articles, a lot of information about crime survivors, about ACEs, about adverse childhood experiences and how that affects um, the grown-ups that we turn out to be. How to be a friend to sexual assault survivors is today's focus. Um, we share headlines about convictions that have come through or about appeals. Um, so both our Facebook page and our county website, or call the office. You're never bothering us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for joining us, and uh, thanks to all of you for joining us on the deep dive today. Uh, we are always happy to hear from you and especially welcome your suggestions on upcoming guests and future conversations. Again, you can email us at deepdiveshow at windownmedia.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Deep Dive Show. And, of course, um, while you're liking Allison's Facebook page, you can like our Facebook page, which is also called Deep Dive Show. 
Uh, I appreciate the help I get from Antonio DeWalk and all of our friends here at KVON Napa. I thank you so much for joining us on the deep dive. I'm Larry Kamer, and we'll see you next time.